Thank you for joining us for another episode of Focus Fireside, a series where we sit down with a Focus Lab team member to learn more about their role, their perspective on branding, and important lessons they've learned. I'm Janina Ramirez, the Business Development Manager here at Focus Lab, and today I'm joined by our Design Director, Natalie Kent. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Focus Fireside. I am so ready to dive into the realms of branding, design leadership, maybe even dip our toe in the metaverse today. I don't know. Something tells me it's going to be a good conversation. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited. Oh, love it. Um, so first off, I should start by stating that you are the design director here at Focus Lab. Uh, that might not be a role that everyone is familiar with. So why don't we start by just kind of explaining what exactly is a design director? Why is your role important? So a design director is in charge of all things design within the agency. Um, so that goes from, at Focus Lab specifically, that goes from the production side where we're doing brand design, we have UI, or moving into brand support um, where we offer the brand support side and design piece there. Um, so I am in charge, I lead our design team in all of those areas. That means you know, making sure that we're helping create our best work. Our team is able to do their best. They're feeling inspired. They're able to be on top of the trends and on top of things that we need to make sure we're watching out for in the design industry and helping people hone their craft to make sure they can do the best work possible. Um, so it's a job that I really enjoy and it's really essential in an agency. And I feel like you have to have a very unique skill set, especially in a leadership sense, not just good design skills. That's often the way people can move up is just, oh, you're a good designer, but really you have to have really good design leadership. And so that's where I feel like my sweet spot is. Love that. I can second that. I think that that's definitely something that a lot of people would just assume they're like, oh, you're just the best designer, right? Like that must be why you're in that role. When in truth, that's just one piece of the puzzle, right? Yes. Oftentimes leadership just gets promoted because they do great design work. And I believe that as a good design leader, I have to hire people who are better than me. That's, that's critically important. Um, the success of the team cannot sit on my shoulders in terms of quality. So it's even more important to make sure that I'm hiring people on my team who can do better design work than I can. It's not my job to be the best. It's my job to lead them. Love that. And on that note, what insights, what perspective do you feel you personally bring to the role? I typically work behind the scenes with the designers. I think the benefit that that gives me is I'm able to see all of the projects happening at once. Um, I'm able to have kind of a bigger bird's eye view of maybe what's going on with projects. I and mean, as we're working through different challenges, that unique perspective and just kind of different types of insights I can get allows us me to be flexible and apply those insights to different projects. I think a lot of times when you're working on a design or any creative endeavor, you often are can have some sort of like tunnel vision on your work. Um, you may just be like zoned in on the creative and it can be really hard to see that forest through the trees. 
And I feel like a big part of my role is to provide that bigger perspective, the bigger picture. What do we need to add to this project? What are we doing too much of? What are these challenges that we're encountering that maybe we've seen before and how we can solve them? So bringing in just that additional unique perspective, more than just the person who's working on it, I think that's really invaluable on any of the creative work that we do. So you are like that moment, like this is a design school reference, but when you're in the middle of a painting, right? You're in it. And then they tell you to stop and take some steps back and really look. I feel like that's what you're providing here. You are the step back. You're the moment where like, let's take a moment and really see what the bigger picture is. And I think what's incredible is you do that across the board with the entire design team, which is pretty exciting. I think that's something that can be a bit unique. You're on every single project here. You are that kind of guiding light for the team where necessary, or just another set of eyes as they kind of go through these projects. Absolutely. Yes. Your example of being in art school where, you know, you're doing the paintbrushes super close up, you know, the pointillism picture, you have to take that step back. And so I I believe that that's an important part of my role is bringing people to see that fuller picture. Where do we see patterns? We recognize patterns that are happening um, and being able to apply that over and over again. And also too, just another level of leadership, not only just on the design and craft side, but for our team as leaders, we have people who you're working with clients directly. You're supposed to be able to defend, confidently defend your ideas, have rationale behind everything that we create and purpose behind everything that we create and designing with excellence, making sure that we are bringing that expertise and that experience at all times um, and working at a high level, expert level, that other piece of that leadership coaching. We're not just good designers, but we're really experts in what we do and we can communicate why we do it well and why we make certain decisions. That piece of it is also critical. Huge. And I think that that's something a lot of people don't realize, right? We are a bit different in that we don't have any account managers. Our designers, our writers, our strategists meet directly with the clients on a weekly basis. So that is not something where they're kind of behind a curtain. So in addition to creating the work, they also need to feel comfortable explaining, defending, giving a rationale. And I think that that just really is incredibly important for the process and also adds another layer of trust. If you're also going to sit there and defend it, you must really believe what you've worked on. And then it also gives our clients that same understanding and opportunity. They can kind of see where the work has been built from, why we believe in a certain direction or a certain path moving forward. And then they can also feel confident to have the same discussions internally, right, at their company about this project. So I think that's huge. It's Again, it's not just about being incredibly talented. You also have to be able to explain and guide and lead people through this project. Yes. You know, there's, make no mistake, like there are tons of talented designers out there. Like more and more designers can be self-taught. There's talent out there, but for people who can actually deeply understand your business, bring their expertise into the branding work that they do, be able to speak on it, give you the tools for to take to your company or your stakeholders to be able to explain the rationale behind it. That's just a whole different level of expertise that you can't just find very easily through you know, some of those websites where you can just pay for logos. They're not taking time to understand you. Other groups like that, they're not taking time to 
create solid rationale, strategy-based design behind the ideas. So yes, that's that's a huge piece that I think sometimes gets overlooked when looking for um, a designer brand partner specifically. For sure. It's another kind of element to craft that I think isn't discussed mm-hmm. as much. Um, switching gears a bit, how does it feel to be a woman leading a creative team, especially considering that on average, only five to 11% of creative director positions are held by women? How does it feel? I hear that statistic and it still makes me cringe <laughs> because <laughs> it's 2022 and that statistic has not budged very much. How it feels in my seat, I am grateful that I've been given the opportunity to be in the seat that I'm in. So there's a piece, a huge piece of gratitude, I think, that comes with that. I'm disappointed that the wheels of change don't move faster. I think oftentimes I see that there's still more women, maybe more gender diversity coming into agencies, but they're still not filling those higher leadership seats, whether it's director level, C-suite, we're still not seeing much change there. And I'm saying that as a white woman, it's even, even worse statistics for women of color, you know, and other people, it's just, it's still just not happening. Um, So it's, I'm grateful for my seat personally, but I also am still frustrated that I don't feel like our industry is moving fast enough, or we're not taking time on women to do the coaching required to help bring them to that level. Um, Another example is that Men often get promoted based on potential and women get promoted based on their past proven experience. I think we need to make sure we're giving women the same opportunity, promoting them for their potential, just like we would any other person to continue to bring more women into leadership. Yeah, actually nurturing women through their careers as opposed to just kind of being like, well, she can do the job because she's obviously already done it right? It's hard when no one gives you the chance sometimes, or no one takes the opportunity to kind of see the potential that's there. And sometimes that means looking at internal biases, and sometimes they're unconscious. You may not realize that you may look at women a certain way who are more assertive. You may look at them in a negative light, where you may see men who are more assertive in a positive light. So sometimes I think it takes an organization or a leadership board to do some self-reflection on um, educating what is unconscious bias or what, what biases may we have. And it's okay to look at yourself and learn um, and evolve and grow and maybe see where we made mistakes in the past or this is how we viewed people in the past and learning from that for the future. So digging into that a bit deeper, why do you believe it's important to prioritize DE&I when building a team? So I believe there's no excuse prioritizing DE&I. Um, there is so much overwhelming evidence that shows diverse teams are smarter, they're more innovative, they create more original ideas. So when you have a diverse team, we can draw inspiration from more places. Um, There are going to be people who have seen brands across the world that I may have never seen. And they're even more likely to capture a new market and have better financial performance. Like ultimately, it's better. It's better financially. And that's confirmed by groups like Forbes, Harvard Business Review, McKinsey. This stuff's all been confirmed. There's overwhelming evidence for it. So it's not just a feel good. Let's just bring more people. It just, it feels great to do. There is actual financial benefit behind doing it and your team will do better work because of it. 
Yeah. I love that. I love that now in this day and age, there are just multiple arguments that are very clear on the numerous benefits on having a diverse team makeup. And I think in design, that's incredibly important too. I think it can be apparent when you don't have a diverse team in the work that's being produced. I think you can see it. I think your clients can see it. I think as we become an even more global economy, I mean, we work with clients all over the world and if they can't, if they can't see their audience or themselves in your work, how can they kind of trust you through this process as well? It's that added layer of empathy that I think we don't always prioritize or think of until maybe we're in the moment, right? Or it's something that we see, you know, in hindsight. Yeah, the the perspective that diversity brings, including all types of diversity, age and disability, all of those pieces just bring that perspective that you alone cannot have by yourself. As much as we think that we're well-traveled and well-lived and we read and all these types of things, that's just not, that is not a duplicate for a real lived experience in someone else's shoes. Um, And so having a diverse team of people who can draw on all those different types of experiences is something that just makes us so much stronger. And I think is often overlooked at a lot of agencies. You know, and it's not even just on like the boots on the ground design or the people doing the work, but it's also critical in leadership too, to make sure that we're leading with even diverse perspectives and bringing that into the fold and having those different kind of ideas that can come together. So still on this topic of leadership and you leading this design team, this creative team, do you have a leadership philosophy yourself and is it in any way affected by the fact that you're leading a fully distributed team? I have a lot of different leadership philosophies. Um, A lot of them are driven by the values at Focus Lab, like lead with courage, strive for excellence. Personally, one of my favorite, um, I often use sports metaphors. It's just, it's kind of funny, (laughs) a little traditional, but I love the one where it's like play as a team and play to win. Yeah. One example of that, and I think that's critical. One example of that is, I remember hearing a story about the Olympic basketball team and how, you know, you have this team and you have all of these rock star players. They're coming together as a team. They're playing in the Olympics, big deal. They went and played the practice game against a college team and they lost. And the Mm. whole, the whole like lesson in that was you can have a bunch of rock star players, but if they don't play well together, you're gonna fail as a team. And I see that often in design where we have rock star designers, we have a lot of roosters that make a lot of noise. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They wanna be the rock stars. They kind of sometimes may tend to tear other people down, not always the case, but different personalities, big personalities. And when you're trying to leave a design team or creative team, it's almost not so important to make sure that you have just the best of all the players but does this team work well and play well together? And that's something I'm really proud of that we built at Focus Lab. I, I personally believe we have some of the best designers in the world. Like I, I love my team, they're incredible. Um, they do incredible work, but what they also do, that's a huge part of our success is we work incredibly well together. We support each other. It's a definitely all over ego mindset, which is the value at Focus Lab. And so something just critical for us to make sure we're doing our best work because we build each other up. 
we sharpen each other, we help make sure that we're doing our best work and can push and pull on each other to make sure we find that right solution. It's not all about just, okay, well, it's just me trying to do my best work. I wanna make sure I come out on top. Um, it has to all be all of us together. And so that's that's a big one for me. I agree. I do also think we have some of the best designers in the world, but you know, we might be a little biased. Kind of touching on that concept a bit more, do you feel it's possible to have a collaborative, rich, innovative design culture with a fully distributed team like Focus Lab? Yes, absolutely. I think that there's a misconception, especially as we're towing this line of remote work, hybrid, traditional workplaces, agencies are current, they're still trying to find like where they fit in that, especially like post COVID, which required all of us to stay home, shut down, be remote. Yeah. The most common excuse that I hear is that collaboration suffers when you're remote. That's like the number one thing I hear on the creative side. Like, you know, you can be remote, but the work isn't going to be as good or collaboration just isn't going to be what it should be. And I a hundred percent push back on that hard every time. I, I believe that if you think collaboration is suffering, then you either haven't provided the tools or provided the arena for your team to collaborate successfully in a remote environment. More and more people are choosing remote. More and more people are prioritizing that. They want a job that allows them to not have to commute every single day. So if we're saying that this is the direction people want to go in and we don't have the tools to be able to collaborate, then sure, we're going to fail. But at Focus Lab, I think that we have found this magic recipe of ways we allow our team to collaborate, whether it's like design crit, whether we do huddles on Slack, whether we do fig jams and Figma, that's more of like a whiteboard session. We have all different types of modes to collaborate depending on what you need. Sometimes we need that more casual conversation where you're kind of just working a little more on the fly. It's not planned. We don't have an agenda. And then sometimes it's definitely agenda-based and we have things that we want to make sure that we cover. But I have not seen, if anything, I've seen the collaboration get richer, but it's just a matter of, do you do you provide your team the different tools and arenas and avenues that they need to do successful collaborative work? And I believe at Focus Lab, we do. Love that. And I Definitely agree. I think a big part of it too is, and I think where the disconnect happens with other companies, even just some of our clients that we've spoken to is that we have a very intentional, purposeful, distributed culture. It was not so much an afterthought of a situation. We've always been, the majority of our 12 years in business, we've been partially distributed. So it was something that we already really were diving into, but I think it just got, it was taken to another level when we actually decided to make the decision to be fully distributed. We were all in, and then we decided to really kind of lean in and make it intentional and really think about it not as, oh, well, this is just, it's kind of like second best. It's, we can't all be in an office, so I guess we can do it this way. Instead, we kind of embraced all of the upsides to having a fully distributed team. We get to work with an incredibly talented team that is all over the country. We really make all sort of conversations intentional. It doesn't mean you can't have like a quick conversation because I actually think that's what most people are worried about when they are maybe moving to a distributed culture, a fully remote culture. Like, well, what if I just want to 
have a conversation or talk to someone like, am I bothering them? And I think that that's something that we've done really well and that we always support conversations in kind of whatever form they are, whether it's chatting in Slack, whether it's hopping on a huddle, whether it's hopping on a Zoom or having jam sessions or crit. I think that we've we've really wanted to be intentional around that. And I have to say, like, I think the work also proves that, that you can do incredible work and have a great culture in this new, in some ways, this new way of working, not necessarily new for us, but yeah, I loved hearing your thoughts on that. You know, you touched on something that I think is also really important that our team is all over the place. It's all over the United States. You can't have a world-class agency in one location, unless you're flying in and bringing in talent and paying that talent to uproot their lives to come to where you are. Focus Lab, we are able to hire people, the talent, where that talent is at. We don't have them uproot their lives if they don't want to, to be able to move somewhere. They can stay right where they're at. In fact, if they choose to move while they're at Focus Lab, they're free to do that also. Like it's not an ending conversation where, well, hey, I wanna leave and move to San Francisco. I guess I can't work here anymore. That's one of the number one limitations that I see is that it's this kind of either or conversation that you're that some of these traditional or hybrid groups are forcing upon their employees is that you're making them choose when they just want something that could be better for their family. They now have to choose. Do they want to prioritize their family or their job? And when you're in a remote culture, that doesn't happen. And it makes the team even feel more supported because the answer immediately is that's wonderful. How can I help you? So not only are we able to attract talent from all over the place and all over the world at some point, um, but we're going to be able to retain that talent, continuing to make them feel supported, growing the talent here that we have. Um, it's just going to make our team so much stronger. Um, so it's it's a piece that I think collaboration is stronger. Our team can get stronger and more diverse. The benefits for us are just um, unlimited to me. Yeah. And culturally, it also just shows that we understand as an agency that our team has lives outside of the office. And we don't just assume that their entire world begins and ends at Focus Lab. And I think that also, again, adds another layer to the culture, to excitement at work. There's just an added layer of empathy, which again, I think really you can kind of see the results in just the day-to-day in the work that we're producing and in the overall morale of the team. Yeah. When you're not just slaving over a job 50, 60 hours a week, when you have moments to explore and have that eureka moment, take a walk in the park, your brain relaxes Your brain is more open to new ideas and seeing new things. You're not just in this like survival work mode. Thank God I got to the end of the week. I'm exhausted and I just need to rest. When you, when your mind, you allow your mind to relax, you open yourself up to other possibilities. You open yourself up to other creative ideas. That is why we are so protective of our culture and making sure people aren't overworked making sure our team has the support that they need to be able to do their work successfully and encouraging people to go for a walk, take a break, take an afternoon off, go explore, go have fun, go do something outside of work. Your hobbies outside of work 
are still going to somehow make your current work better. It's going to create these other connections in your mind. You're going to be connecting these pieces that seemingly are disconnected. It's going to help you do that. And those pieces bridge what you're working on and what that unknown is. And that's where creativity lies. And so the more we, we foster that and we allow time for that, it makes our team stronger. Oh, yes, it does. I love everything about that. Switching gears a quick second. So you recently wrote an article on how branding is one of the most critical intangible assets and a huge driver in value. How is branding different from other intangible assets and why is it so important? Our economy is becoming increasingly intangible. COVID played a large role in making us more comfortable with that. So we're working in remote offices, we order food online, we stream our entertainment. So so much of how we interact with the world is now through intangible things. And so as you mentioned, like brand is a big piece of that. The concept of intangible assets is not new, but brand and reputation is a piece that I feel like seems to be overlooked. And so with this piece of branding that I think people aren't looking at, We need to realize that brand enhances the value of the intangible assets around it. So like one example in the article was with Starbucks. You take a coffee cup, just a plain paper coffee cup with no logo, no brand on it. Ask people what they would pay for it versus you put the Starbucks logo on the cup. You put an Apple logo on a pair, a phone. Suddenly the price people are going to pay for that product increases, I think, typically like 30% at least. Um, And obviously with brands like Starbucks and Apple, that would be a lot more. Yeah. So brand alone is increasing the value of the tangible assets that it touches. But brand also works synergistically with other intangible assets. So intellectual property, licensing are often ones that come to mind, software, um, where it makes those assets stronger than the sum of their parts. So one example, I think it's in the book, Capitalism Without Capital. They talk about how brand and intangible assets can work together where it's like a one plus one equals three scenario. Like brand might be worth this much and, you know, your IP is worth this much, but somehow they come together and it equals three. And that's, that's how these intangible assets can work together to create something even stronger and more valuable than just those individual pieces alone. And I think brand is a huge piece that can tie all that together. The other two I would just say is that brand, like other intangibles, requires an upfront cost. So you invest in IP, you invest in the R&D, you invest in brand, but then it's scalable. Like if you want to sell software, you, make, you build that software once. And you can sell that IP over and over and over again. You can license over and over and over again. Brand is the same way. It can scale as large as your company scales. And then ultimately, the one piece that brand does that no other intangible can do is that there's no spillover with brand. Like, yes, someone can copy your logo, but that's not going to be successful for that company. A brand has to be different in order to succeed. Um, So where you can still copy software and build another product, sure, there's the Ubers and the Lyft. But if Lyft just created another brand that looked just like Uber, they would be 100% solidifying Uber as that category king. People would, would just go to Uber. Why would they choose Lyft? So brand allows you to still carve out a niche, reach a new audience, maybe take more of that market share, build your own market share. 
build a whole new category that maybe doesn't exist. That's a really unique piece that uh, brand touches that other intangibles don't. I think this really just reinforces the importance of having an intentional brand, not rushing your brand process, really making sure you're taking all of this into account when you're creating your brand. I think when you see the value, again, on a variety of levels, tangible and intangible, it should make you want to stop and really think and really go through this brand process with intentionality, with an eye to the future and an understanding of the past that balance of the two, because the, all of the brands you're kind of speaking of are very intentional brands that they've really kind of thought through all of these pieces. And that's also where people just assume, oh, okay, so I just need a brand. Let's just, what is a brand? Let's just get a, a fancy logo. We're good. It looks different from that guy's logo. We're fine. But I think it just really reinforces the fact that if you have a really thoughtful, intentional brand that you've spent time and effort really diving into strategy and your future and your trajectory and just laying that foundation, the value that it's going to provide is just infinite. You can't actually even measure it at this moment. I think especially that's kind of why I like to reframe brand as an asset, just like you would invest and take seriously a financial investment in other parts of your business. You should do the same with branding, treat it with that same seriousness, because there's a reason why we call it a brand identity. You are building an identity for your company. Imagine if you were trying, someone's trying to reinvent themselves and create a new identity and how, how difficult that would be, what a big endeavor that would be to transform your life essentially. And how typically you're going to want some outside perspective as you're building that it's no different with brand. It's a large undertaking, a critical endeavor, even to create, to rebrand in the first place or to rename, you know, those are huge decisions. You need to have a partner, a guide with you along that journey and making sure that you take that seriously. You take that investment seriously and you're looking at yourself and you're looking at, okay, we're embarking on this. Let's, let's bring a guide along with us to help kind of guide us through it. But I always tell people like, we are not magicians. We're also not just pulling this out of thin air and inventing something for you. We are pulling out what is good and unique and original within your company and letting that shine. That authenticity and that you know personality and archetype and all of those pieces, we just bring that to light. But we're not trying to completely invent someone new and just this new persona like a mask because people can see right through that. So you also want to make sure that you're bringing on someone who takes the time to actually understand you, understand what you do. They really, they read all the material. They learn as much as they can about you, get up to speed. So they can make strong recommendations for your brand, where you should go. I always like to tell people the metaphor, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Yeah. And that's a huge piece of brand and strategy to figure out where do we even want to go? Because there's a million different roads. And again, you can hire a designer who can do anything. They can design anything for you. But even just knowing the road you want to go down, what's the direction that you're going in, that piece alone is so critical. And why branding alone with strategy, design, all those pieces work together so well to make sure that your, your business, your brand is on the path it should be. Are there any overarching themes, 
trends or challenges in design that you see our clients facing in the future? Yes. So there are so many brands, so many like new things all the time. We're constantly seeing new brands, new launches, brands all over the place. And so one of the challenges or kind of overarching themes that I see is it's going to be more important than ever to create a brand that is original and cuts through the noise because of that. Marketplaces that get more crowded, or maybe you're trying to tap into a new or emerging market, you have to have that brand that stands out and is original because there are also great brands that don't feel original, that maybe feel kind of like that copycat piece. And that also doesn't serve anyone. Again, when we go back to spillover, that's not a great thing. There's a lot of just copycat pieces. So making sure that you have that originality the strategy to make sure that you're positioned correctly, the communications to make sure you're speaking where you can cut through that noise and a design that can help kind of tie it all together. Um, I feel like that's more more important than ever in the direction that we're going in where we have so many brands kind of around us day to day. Oh, I think that's so important too when thinking about this new world of Web3, crypto, NFTs. Like I feel like in this moment in time, we're seeing like a flood of new companies, new organizations popping up. And I feel like everything is about the race to get to the future first. And I feel like soon the conversation is also going to need to be like the space is crowded. Brand is again, going to be seen as just an incredible differentiator, especially as we are marching into this new moment in history. So any thoughts on that? Yes, I definitely see this discomfort of like, ah, what do we do? We got to do something. We got to be first mover in this. And there is tons of research behind the drawbacks of the first mover disadvantage. Like um, Mm -hmm. there there are tons of studies behind that. Just because you're first doesn't mean you're best. Um, Just because you're the pioneer doesn't mean you'll be successful. The settlers are usually the one that come in and they, they build the success. They learn from the pioneers that came first. And there's so many brands, like Netflix is an example. There was a type of video streaming service out before Netflix. It failed because they were first and the market wasn't ready yet. And then they weren't able to capitalize on it. And then this second mover, Netflix, came in. I feel like it's the same thing with Web3, NFTs, Metaverse, like all of that. People are trying to, they feel uncomfortable. They feel like they should do something. And so they try to, rush in just to be first. And I always try and tell people, take time to understand your strategy. How will this apply to you, your company, your industry? How can you take time to make sure you're able to make the biggest impact possible? Community is really big in Web3. So building an authentic community, what does that look like? What does the vision for your community look like? And how can you now build that to make sure that that's something that's valuable for the people who join, not just for the next year, two years, but the next decade, that this is something, a brand or a piece that they want to be a part of. The other side of it also is that people don't want to just follow your brand just to like join your, say, your metaverse space for your brand. They want your brand to plug into their lives and their experience make that more frictionless, make that more enjoyable. So there's also this side of it where it's like this traditional mindset of like, 
we're going to build a space for our brand and people are going to come to it. It's like, no, like that's so, that's so outdated. We know that we love brands best when they blend into our lives and they enhance our lives. It's the same in the metaverse as it is in the physical verse. And so like, that's just something I think people need to make sure and brands, especially as a strategy, need to pay attention to. It's not so good where you're going to create a space that people are just going to come to and be in your brand space. They want you to come to them. Yeah. So we're not necessarily coining the phrase, if you brand it, they will come. Kind of right. need to kind of need to meet as <laughs> my dad joke for the day. I'm very proud of myself <laughs> on that one. I think that's such an interesting concept and conversation too. Also the fact that brand would nurture these communities, right? That that would be a major proponent, like a major kind of plum, a major piece in these communities is brand itself. Um, and that's something that would add value, draw people and really just kind of grow these communities, which you kind of touched on it. Like a lot of this is going to be community building, right? People coming together in new ways that we're starting to kind of see right now, but maybe we haven't really fully realized. So I'm excited to kind of see that. Yeah. I, I recently attended a Twitter spaces that was just talking about brands in the metaverse you know, so just an interesting topic. It's, it was a free event. So I joined it and Bud Light was actually a attendee of the event. And they actually gave some thoughts around branding and they were contributing to the conversation. And at the, the end, they gave everyone a POAP, basically proof of attendance kind of token for joining, which you can now use to be a part of like brand decisions and whatever. They kind of have rules around how you can use it. And I am not a Bud Light person. And this is not a Bud Light ad, <laughs> But it was so interesting how they brought me, someone who's not a Bud Light fan, but by being in the space that I enjoy to be in, by being a part of that conversation and adding value to it, like I'm now talking about it. And I thought that was just, that's one example of how it's very natural. They didn't come up with a big Bud Light arena and everyone join and talk about Bud right. Light things. They came to spaces where they thought, we could add value to this conversation. Even it's unpaid, no one was paying for it. Free knowledge, people could leave and never say anything again, but they were adding value to that. And then here I am giving them as an example. So I, I love that. I thought that was just fascinating. And yeah, I never thought I'd be talking about Bud Light, but here I am. Yeah, I, that was definitely not on my list. I love everything about that. I think kind of <laughs> to touch on your point too, I think it's the difference between a punch in the face and a handshake. Like it's someone coming, it's the brand actually like coming to you, extending a hand in the space that you're in and recognizing that maybe they weren't for you before, but you're here to kind of just engage in a different light as opposed to just kind of breaking down walls like the Kool-Aid man, man, we're getting real retro today. And just being like, <laughs> I'm here, pay attention to me because I'm here. I think we're at an, an era where it's more about a value exchange on several different levels than just pay attention because I exist and I'm flashy. That goes full circle now back to the conversation we're having about empathy and diverse perspectives to be able yep. to extend that hand in the right way where it isn't going to come across as like brash and look at me. That requires that diverse team, the diverse perspectives, knowing how to speak to different people and a deep understanding of who you are as a company, your values, your mission, what you stand for, your brand, and then how you can express that to the world. Yeah. Oh, that is so critical. So kind of wrap up today. 
I have a question that I love to ask. Is there any advice you like to share to anyone embarking on a rebrand? The biggest piece of advice that I have, whether you've done a rebrand before, whether you're doing a new brand, is you're kind of going to feel like you're stepping into the unknown a little bit. And the unknown is something that we talk about, I talk about a lot in creativity. So the artist, the creative, whether you're a musician, artist, whatever, when you are doing a creative act, you create something from nothing. So you use a blank canvas, blank note sheet, whatever, to create something beautiful and incredible, like a work of art. And there's no path to that other than the creative process. And so I think where people, if you're not a creative or you don't consider yourself a creative, when you're moving into this creative endeavor, there's going to be a piece of that there that feels a little uncomfortable. I think at Focus Lab, we do a great job of helping our clients along the way, being that guide through some of that unknown as we're trying to discover your best brand possible and what you can be and how it's going to manifest itself. But it's also going to be a step into trust and a step into that unknown together, that we're going to find this mission statement together, this logo, these brand pieces. We're going to find this together, but there's going to be some unknown along the way. That We try to bridge that gap as much as possible, showing that iterative process, showing visual strategy where we start to show, here's some ideas visually where we think the brand could go. So we try and kind of guide that along the way. But I think there's always this still this piece of that unknown. And especially if you get close to, you're in the middle of the brand. I think a lot of people realize, wow, like this is going to be big for my company. This is going to be a big change. Maybe some people come into a rebrand thinking, oh, we're just going to get some new colors. We're going to slap on a new logo, you know, like right. this will be easy. And then I think a lot of people realize that this is a big deal. This is going to be transformative for our company, but you're kind of at the very top of the roller coaster as it's about to like go down in a good way, right? Like in a fun way, you're about to have the increased <laughs> momentum and it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. Your brand is literally going to take off. Maybe a rocket would be a better example, but you know, like your brand is about to take off. You're on that precipice. But for so many people, that point can be so scary because it's getting real what the impact of this can be, how transformative it can be. And sometimes people can tend to want to retreat back to that safer known space rather than this is the right thing for your business in this moment. This brand is going is manifesting at this moment for you and it's going to project you into that next 10, 20, 30 years and beyond. And that's exciting and that's incredible for your business. Every client always ends up going past that point, you know, they, they, they take it and they run with it. And it feels incredible once you're, once you're riding that rocket ship out in the outer space. But there's that definitely that point of nervousness too. Once we've worked through the unknown and now it's becoming real, how powerful this is. That's exciting and exhilarating and gets people nervous at the same time. And so I think a big part of our job is to also encourage people like, this is the right choice for your business. This is going to be great. This is a great decision and will propel you guys forward. So that'd probably be one of the biggest things that some of that brand therapy I like to give to people on kind of where they're at in brand. Natalie, this was an absolute pleasure. 
Loved every second. We talked about all the things. Knew the metaverse would get in there at some point. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. A little bit, a little bit. Little bit. This was great. Can't wait to chat with you again in the future. But until then. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to never miss an episode. To stay up to date on the latest from Focus Lab, follow us on social media at Focus Lab LLC and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, focuslab.agency. Thank you for listening.